0: Father, we thank You for the ministry of the Holy Spirit who has continued in enormous fashion the work of Christ and is continuing this great work of Christ even now. And so, Father, we thank You for Him. And we pray that You would use Your Spirit and that He would work through Your Word now, even in these few moments that we have, that it would be not dead but alive, that it would not be passive as as we read it or as it comes to us, but it would be active. We would store it up and live our lives according to it. Father, we thank You that you would choose to minister to us now by your grace. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So to try to quickly show us where we are, in 1 Samuel 24, we have gotten to this place where David is on the run from King Saul. And last week we looked at how Saul came and wiped out this place priestly city of Nob, and we saw that in 1 Samuel 22, and this was in response to them, uh, to a priest there in that city, uh, protecting David, or or more specifically, offering David bread and a sword, and uh, even standing up to Saul um, on David's behalf, and we see Saul responding with rage and wiping that city out. Now, the reason that that's Continuing to be important, even today as we look at this, is that David realizes he's in more danger than ever. Because in 1 Samuel 23, David gets word that the city of Cala, an Israelite city, is being attacked by the Philistines and being robbed. David comes in with his men to fight off the Philistines, protecting this city, um, being a a force for uh, Israel in Cala. And he does defeat the Philistines there, that portion of the army. Saul gets word of this, finds out he's there, makes his move to this city. David asks the Lord, he says, will, will, this, will these people give me up to Saul, even though I have just come in and saved them from the Philistines? And the Lord responds and says, They will surrender over you and your men if you remain there. And so this is to tell David, that he's not safe anywhere, no matter what he does with the people of Israel because of the fear that they now have after hearing about the massacre at the city of Nob. And so this puts, David realizes he's in a more dangerous place than ever before. And so as he is on the run, he sees that there is no secure place for him. And so what I'm going to do today is just read 1 Samuel 24, verses 1 through 8 as we see Saul chasing after David, starting in verse 1, 1 Samuel 24. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it.'" Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward David's heart struck him. And because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe, He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My Lord the King. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. This is the word of the Lord. Now here's where I think this whole chapter, and we're just dealing with a portion of it, but where it's leading us and it's showing us through the life of David and it's, and it's giving us an example of making sure that vengeance stays with the Lord, and we're going to see this in three uh, three ways. Here are three um, uh, three sections. One, uh, it takes a bold confidence in God's decisions. It also um, it also takes a fight for the ministry of the conscience of your conscience, and it takes a pursuit of reconciliation. Now, when Paul is describing the Paul, the apostle in the New Testament, when he is describing the radical marks of the true gospel-centered life in Romans chapter 12, one of his descriptions, he says, is to never avenge yourselves. And he says, for vengeance is the Lord's. He will repay. And in this story, in chapter 24, we're seeing this laid out through these three key things. And so I want us to first look at this bold confidence in God's decisions. And we see this primarily in verses 4 and verse 6. And in verse 4, it's when David is saying, David says, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, or these are the people telling this to David, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. David's response is that the Lord forbids him to do this thing to the Lord's anointed. Okay, so David is seeing here something different than the other people that are in his, uh, in his army are seeing. Now, there are some reasons that David could justify the killing of Saul, and I think we could all agree with these things. First, Saul, the king of Israel, is trying very hard to kill David. He's doing everything he can. We see in this text that he brings 3,000 of his men to come after David, who only has about 400 people with him. This shows the paranoia in the mind of Saul. The commitment that he has to go after uh, um, David. And so, what we see is this jealousy on Saul's part that's leading to rage and leading to a desire to kill him. And so, we see this could justify a reason for David killing Saul. And David's followers even see this and want that done. Also, we see that Saul is, we just see that simply Saul is an evil king. He's neglected the voice of Samuel. He's refused God's commands and how to carry out God's purposes for the nation of Israel. As I mentioned just a moment ago, he gathered all the priests and the families, women, children, uh, men, children, even livestock, destroyed them all in the city of Nob simply because the, per- the priest gave David bread and a sword. And so we see this is an evil king and this could easily justify be a justifiable reason for David to kill Saul here in this cave. And also, we can just easily easily see and know that, it, that for God's people, Israel would be uh, better off with David as king than as Saul as king. And David could easily know that himself. Now, it would also be fair to say that David had at this moment feelings of great animosity towards Saul. Probably deep hatred was within him. And so not only are these things that we should observe and see, not only are we to see that the author is telling us these things, but these these things are in the heart of David. David is probably going through his head and his heart all of the reasons why he should take Saul's life at this moment. But here's what we find here. That there is something that is far more certain than all of these justifiable reasons. That there is something that rises above David's deep animosity towards Saul. David's deep fear of him. Of David's desire for even... Or or David's own wisdom for Israel's future. Something else rises above all of this. And it's David's bold confidence... In God's decision. That he had allowed Saul to become king. And even through to this point. After all that Saul has done. David has left him in this position. Now the longer that Saul stays king. And we're seeing this unfold. Page after page in this text. That the longer he stays king. The worse off he gets. The more evil takes over Saul's actions. And so we see that we are just at this point the tension is is that we know that Saul has to be removed but David is seeing that God's got something going on that he doesn't quite see and he knows he knows that God is wiser than he is and so he chooses to be governed because being because he's being filled with the spirit And because he's not giving in to his vengeful flesh, he's choosing to be governed by the decisions of God. This is clear in verse 12 that we didn't read earlier, but this is of chapter 24 where where David says, May the Lord judge between me and you, Saul. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. And then in verse 15, he says, May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you. See to it. And plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. Now it's we long for revenge. And if you can't admit that, then you're hiding a truth, okay? We when people hurt us, we long for revenge. That's kind of first instinct. There's nothing more frustrating for us than to see someone who has trampled over us to then succeed. And the way that we long to deal for that is to take revenge, to handle it ourselves. And there are times when we may feel that we are the only person that can adequately carry out the right amount of justice because we are the only person that has experienced an extreme amount of pain from someone who has run over us or who has hurt us or who has hurt someone in our family. And so we we will go after them with revenge. And this is important for us to recognize and see that this is first step. Fallen nature, first step is revenge. This is what we, is sweet to us. I think that's even a phrase, revenge is sweet. It is sweet to humanity and it is sweet to you and everyone in this room. And what we are seeing here is that most likely David is having all of those feelings that you and I would have. He is probably struggling, just as you and I would, with thinking through how sweet revenge would be. How great it would be to exercise his power and his favor at that moment and to take out King Saul. But we see a bold confidence here in God's decisions. And this bold confidence rises above everything else. And so a few things that are important as we look at this confidence in God's decision. First, when we're thinking through our, our vengeful nature, and it's imp- so it's important to understand we may have good, legitimate reasons for taking revenge. We may have a sense of justice and goodness behind some of those thoughts, but they are all, and this, is, this isn't sometimes, they are always mixed with bad, sinful reasons. Okay? And Now, we we hide that, (laughs) and we voice the good reasons why revenge is good, and we suppress the other ones, but they're always mixed. They're always mixed. So justice, consideration for others, they very well may be a part of a desire for revenge, a a desire for vengeance, but sinful things are always in the mix. There's always something like anger or coveting or impatience that are there. We usually keep them beneath the surface, but they're there and they're intense and they're actually what's driving it more than even the good things. And so we have to be aware of that. And this is what, uh, hopefully what we're seeing here, hopefully what this text is telling our hearts here is that vengeance always comes with sin. It always comes with danger. It always comes with harm. Secondly, God's wrath and His vengeance is always completely righteous. So do we see the difference? Our vengeance, we may have some legitimate reasons, it's always mixed with sin. So it's always broken, fallen, poisoned. God's vengeance is always perfectly righteous. When Paul Paul is telling us in Romans 12 that vengeance is the Lord's, And this is what he says. He says, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. What Paul is saying is, leave righteousness. Leave the opportunity for righteousness to come in. Because your vengeance is mixed with sin. But God's vengeance is perfect and it's righteous. Third thing to consider here. God's patience is beyond our comprehension. What we see in Genesis chapter 15 is that the Lord told Abraham that he was going to give him a land and he was going to give him a people. But he says, but before any of that stuff begins to take place, your descendants will wander in the wilderness and they will be uh, persecuted by the Amorites. And then he he says something that would be mind-blowing. It was mind-blowing to Abraham and it would be to us. He says, and that's going to take place for 400 years. And the reason that that's going to take place so long is because it's going to take 400 years for my patience to run up, to run out, and for the wickedness of the Amorites to be complete, to be full. And so the Lord's telling Abraham that you're not going to be able to comprehend this kind of patience. And you're not going to be able to comprehend the way in which I will stall judgment but you're going to have to trust me. And we can't comprehend that kind of patience. And so as as we need to have bold confidence in God's decisions, we have to take those things into account. Our desire for revenge is always poisoned by sin. God's God's vengeance is always perfectly righteous. And when we don't wait on His vengeance, we poison that perfect righteousness. And then we can never comprehend God's patience. And so that's why it takes a bold confidence in God's decision. That it takes that to forgive. It takes that to, for, to extend grace to other people. And it takes a bold confidence in God's decisions to be able to help others succeed. Now, I'm aware and we sh- should all come to this conclusion that there are also times when God would call us to act and to carry out justice and to uh, be very proactive in God's goodness and what He would want for the world. And so where does that leave us? And I think that takes us to this second point as I'm trying to move through here, but as it takes us to this second point for the need to fight for the ministry of the conscience. And the Bible speaks about the conscience over and over again. One particular place in Romans 2 tells us that even the Gentiles who had never read or don't have access to the written law, it tells us that that, that, um, to them is shown the work of the law because it is written on their hearts. And Paul says, while their conscience also bears witness. And this is to say that there's a part of humankind that has a connection to God, whether believer or unbeliever. It has a connection to God, and it's to say that we are connected to His ways, and we have an understanding of His goodness and His ways, and this is good news. This is good news to us in here in this room, but it's also good news as we look to share the gospel with other people and have a hope for a civil society. But also the Bible tells us that we can do major damage to the conscience, even our conscience. 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 2 says, But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. And then verse 2 says, By means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Paul also talks about this in First. Corinthians chapter 8, that the conscience can be defiled. But here's what happens. In faith, as we are brought near to the cleansing power of Christ, the author of Hebrews tells us this in in verse 22, chapter 10. He says, Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And so... the, the author is wanting us to see here that as the author of Hebrews is wanting us to see just as the author of 1 Samuel is wanting us to see that there is there is a ministry of God through our conscience that because of faith that we can hear from God about what He longs for us to do and how He wants us to carry out His will. And what we see in chapter 24 of 1 Samuel, what we see in verse 5, this is after David cut off the corner of Saul's robe, it says, And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Now your version or some versions may say that he was stricken by his conscience, or his, he was struck by his conscience. And this is to say that David was able to be connected to God through his conscience to see what God wanted. to see what God, He was sensitive to it. He allowed the ministry of the conscience to be at work. So I would just ask this. How do we maintain? How do we cleanse? And how do we develop the ministry of the conscience? there may be a number of things that we could say, but I'm going to leave it with this thing. To let the Word of God maintain this ministry to your conscience so that your conscience can maintain a ministry to you. So let the Word of God maintain a ministry to your conscience so that your conscience can maintain a ministry to you. Now, our fallen nature and our thoughts and our emotions, they harden us, they harden our conscience, and they silence our conscience. Now, I remember when I, I moved into my home here uh, in this neighborhood, and one of the one of the challenges and one of the setbacks really of moving here was that we were just two streets over from a train a train track that a train is seems like constantly on, and this train would always let um, this area of the town know when it's coming, and it was it's very loud, uh, and. So one of the challenges was is that it would wake us up at night. Every night when we first moved here, it would wake us up at night. Just as we're almost getting Ellie, who was our only child at the time when we first moved here, just as we were getting her to bed, the train would come through and wake her up. Now, we've been here for five years. And the other day, I was on my phone out in my front yard. And I was talking to a friend who lives not in this area. And all of a sudden he said, what in the world is that noise? And it was the train blaring through, but I didn't even hear it. I was just sitting there talking because I had gotten so, my ear had been trained, no pun intended, my ear had been trained not to hear the train. And I was able to live through life without having any understanding that that train was coming through. It never wakes any of us up. It comes through all the time, but it's like it's not there. We have silenced that train in our home. Now, this is something that's positive. This is something negative. We can silence our conscience. We can lose our ear for our conscience without God's Word. And so, listen, there's no way around this. How do we maintain the ministry of the conscience? There's no alternate path. It's only through God's Word. We have to read God's Word. We have to hear God's Word. We have to study God's Word. We have to talk about God's Word. And we have to memorize God's Word. There's no other way... This is how God feeds our conscience, aligns our conscience, continues to align our conscience with Him. This is how we keep our conscience from being silenced and keep it from being hardened, keep it from being evil. Because as we have a bold confidence... In God's decisions, how do we always know what those decisions are? This often He tells us through our conscience. And we have to maintain that ministry through His Word. Now the question though would be how do we how is this idea of letting vengeance remain in the Lord's hand? How is that sustainable? Even with having faith in God's decisions, even with maintaining a ministry of the conscience, how is this sustainable? Because in many of you have, can probably relate to this. Actually, probably most of us can relate to this. You've walked through forgiving someone or you have walked through um, letting go of grudges only for them to reappear as soon as something doesn't work out right or as soon as um, an offense is repeated. And so, how is, and so in other words, we may try to give vengeance to the Lord and we exercise forgiveness, but we're always very quick to take this back, to let go of a grudge, but then it comes back, to exercise forgiveness or let it come back. And so how, how is this sustainable? What we see David doing is, we look at this and be honest as we look at this text. What we see David doing one, he doesn't kill Saul, and we say, foolish. There's no hope for David. He's going to be killed by Saul if he doesn't do something. He doesn't kill him. Then then he chases after him. Then he uh, tracks Saul down. To reconcile. He pursues reconciliation with this madman. With this man who will wipe out cities. Because of his hatred for David. And Saul had no idea he was there. But David made it known. And he pursued reconciliation with him. And as you read through the rest of the chapter. This is what David is doing with Saul. He is looking to reconcile. He is looking to leave vengeance in the Lord's hands for good. He is looking to not just do this for a moment, not just exercise self-control or forgiveness for a moment. He is looking to make this completely sustainable. And so he lays it on the line. He risks everything to try and reconcile with this mad king. And remember, this is with an unreasonable man that David is doing this with. Saul then begins to weep. He begins to declare David's goodness. And we see a glimpse, and it's a small glimpse, and it's not long-lasting, but we see a glimpse of the power of pursuing reconciliation and trusting in God's decisions. So, as we wrap up here, reconciliation sustains the work of God in your life. And it's unsustainable. This, this process of leaving vengeance in the Lord's hands is completely unsustainable without the work of re- reconciliation. Now, we may think it's noble to forgive those that you will still de- despise. You may think, think that there is nobility in uh, forgiving and leaving people alone that you hate, but it cannot be sustained. It will not last. You cannot continue in that state of forgiveness. Some of you know exactly what I'm referring to because it keeps coming up again and again, and some memory will just set it off. But reconciliation sustains the work of God in your life. Also, reconciliation is often, most often, really, for the other person. Most people don't understand it, most people don't know how to do it. Most people understand how to say they're sorry. And most people even know the power of saying they're sorry and how it can benefit themselves. But reconciliation is on a whole different level because it it looks to restore. And it doesn't just look to restore you to where you can begin to function well and have good relationships in the future. It looks to restore the other person. What we're seeing here is that by the power of God, what David is seeking is that Saul would be restored. Is that Saul would see God's hand at work. David is longing to pursue Saul because he is for the other person. And so when we do that, we offer the hope of freedom, not just for ourselves, but for others. And then also reconciliation models the gospel. It portrays the truth of the gospel as we seek to lay down our own lives and even consider others more important than ourselves. We seek to restore, to unite with other people that maybe do not deserve it. And that preaches the gospel to those that are in your life. And so these things, having a bold confidence in God's decision, fighting for the ministry of the conscience, and then pursuing reconciliation, these must take place to be able to put vengeance in the Lord's hands and to leave it there. And I hope that you will see how this is is not just to one or two people in this room. This is something that is deep inside of our fallen nature, the need to seek revenge, the need to validate ourselves the need to move ourselves from one position to another, even if it means removing other people from that position. But this is what we're seeing in this text, that by the work of God, David is putting vengeance into his hands, and that is God's will. Now, here's how we know that God will deal with injustice, okay? Because... One of the problems is is we just don't believe that it's going to happen if we don't do it. But here's how we know that God will deal with injustice. It's very simple. As we turn to the New Testament, and even as the Old Testament tells us what's coming, we're told about the cross. And we're told about Jesus coming to die on the cross so that the guilty would not go unpunished. So that God's vengeance would be carried out in the most just way. And He pours out His wrath, His righteous, perfect, holy wrath on His Son. And what that tells us is, is that God will go to an extreme place to make sure that vengeance is carried out. So extreme that He would send His own Son, His only begotten Son here, so that vengeance could be carried out, so that wrath could be poured out, so that justice could be served. And this is how we know. We know that God will maintain justice and continue to deal with injustice because He has dealt with it on the cross. And He promises us. He promises us. And that is a picture of Him making all things right. We can rest in that. We can hope in that. We can trust in God's goodness and His justice by looking to the cross and by seeing what happened there. Let's pray. Father, I just pray that, Lord, Your your Spirit would be at work even as I just rushed through a sermon and so many things I didn't even say. Lord, I just pray, um, God, that You would just... Use what was said, what was heard, what was read in our life, in our hearts. Father, I pray that, Lord, we can let us face the reality of these things. Let us face that it would be close to impossible to do what David has done here. So let us see the work of your Spirit that's necessary. It's necessary for us to trust in you and to be able to hear you speak to us and lead us and guide us. Lord, we desperately need you. We ask, Father, that you would go before us and then that you would be waiting for us, joining with us, uniting with us. Give us great confidence in what you're doing. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.